So I'm recording from Denmark, which is a country that is in complete lockdown. And when I say complete lockdown, that's actually not entirely true. Because, you know, you're allowed to go outside, you're allowed to to enter into public spaces, you just have to be careful, basically, you have to um, be two meters apart from everyone, you have to not touch your face, you know, all of these things we already know. But the thing that's tricky to me is, you know, how to react in this situation. Because when I look outside my window, I see people going about their day. I see people who walk. No, they don't walk. They stroll about. Uh, I see even kids playing. I see parents walking about with their kids. And everything seems normal to me. But then I log on to the news media of my country and everything is just, you know, breaking news. Everything's yellow and black and <laughs> everything's just meant to grab my attention and to tell me how terrible the coronavirus is all around the world, not just in Denmark. So I'm sort of stuck between panic and calm. And that's a strange thing, you know, that's a strange situation to find yourself in because none of these two, you know, these two oppose each other. They're complete extremes in a way. And I'm just supposed to be in the middle and sort of behave in a way, you know, sort of figure out what's best for me. You know, that's a strange, that's, that's strange to me at least. But this entire ordeal with the coronavirus and being stuck in the middle between two extremes, that actually goes very well with what I want to talk about today. If you go about online, you'll notice that a lot of people will tell you life doesn't matter. And uh, these are people who are not really nihilists, you know, existential nihilists. They are what I call pastiche nihilists. They'll say life doesn't matter. Whatever you do, you know, it's completely meaningless. And these are people who have watched just one too many episodes of Rick and Morty. And that is why I call them pastiche nihilists and not just actual existential nihilists. Because these are people who are... They're parodies. Well, they're actually worse than parodies. They're pastiche. They're not really nihilists in any significant way, in any meaningful way. Um, They're they're truly the, the worst of postmodern nihilists. But one thing they'll say to justify their position, you know, that life is meaningless, they'll say that no one will remember you when you're dead. When your closest family and your closest friends, they die themselves, you'll be completely forgotten. So whatever you do on this planet is meaningless. And of course, this, you know, that's their attempt to de-illegitimize the world and life and existence. And even though it's not true, you know, I have a hard, and I'll get back to that, why I don't think that's true. You know, it's it feels kind of weird to me because, you know, to me, this legitimizes life. You know, knowing that I won't be remembered, that's, that's you know, that's not a curse. That's a blessing to me. It frees you up in so many different ways. So I don't really get it. But furthermore, it's completely wrong because there will always be someone who remembers you And it'll definitely not be anyone you thought it would be. It'll definitely not be someone you (laughs) hoped that would remember you. But you will be remembered. Because today we have technology. And technology remembers everything and is completely incapable of forgetting. You know, technology remembers everything from passwords to cookie settings to options in games. But it also remembers dead people as well. As we speak right now, there are hundreds, thousands, millions of ghosts trapped in our machines. 
And they're all confined by their particular machine. They're all subjected to the internal logic of whatever machine they find themselves in. I don't think this kind of spectrality has been explored that much. And I think that is very important because technology remembers everything. And at the same time, technology is proliferating rapidly. So this is an important topic to me. And I just want to focus on three cases. The first one is the Korean mother who got to meet her deceased daughter through virtual reality. I'm sure you've already seen it on the internet. It's very popular. It's, 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 it's spreading a lot right now. It's going viral. But basically, uh, this Korean mother lost her daughter when the daughter was seven. You know, she died due to a rare illness, to a rare disease. And everything happened within a month. You know, the girl's demise was so rapid that no one could really have the time to process it. And now, a couple of years later, when the daughter was supposed to be 11 years old, some designers in South Korea designed it to let the mother meet her daughter one last final time. So they recreated the girl in virtual reality. And you've probably all seen the video online because it's so uh, pre prevalent. But basically, they give the mother uh, some VR goggles to wear. And they also give her some sensory gloves, which simulates or gives the impression that she is actually sensing something. So when she would be touching her daughter or the avatar of her daughter, she would get the sensation that she's touching a dress or her skin or her hair. Now, what's very interesting about this thing is that the daughter has been designed and coded and rendered. She's a complete simulation. And it could be a fun exercise to figure out what kind of order she would belong to in the Baudrillardian sense. But that's not what we are going to do today. But, you know, it would be an interesting thing to talk about, to discuss. Because one thing... Um, one thing that, that sort of struck me was the question, you know, how accurate is this particular simulation? You know, did they get the hair right? Did they get the voice right? Did they get the personality right? You know, it, and that's because to me, if you view the video, it seems as if the daughter is an NPC in a cutscene. That's such a terrible thing to say, but it, that's genuinely how it appears to me. You know, she's constantly asking the mother weird questions like, do you love me? Are you scared? Um, she's constantly dragging the mother along to different things. And that's why it seems as if the VR experience becomes like a priest's eulogy. I don't know how you do uh, funerals or burials in general in your country, but in Denmark, usually during these funerals, uh, a priest will deliver a eulogy based on the descriptions of the deceased person that the relatives give to the priest. So that means that every description of the deceased person will be put together by the signifiers the relatives give. And that's not necessarily accurate, because in, in one sense, you can never capture a person in language. Not completely. That's, that's psychoanalysis 101, basically. You cannot capture 
a person or subjectivity in language. That's impossible. But the same thing goes for technology as well. We don't have a, a, a well-developed technology yet. We don't, it's not so developed that we can actually capture uh, the complexities and the multiplicities and the multitudes that exist within a person. So the designers of this VR experience had to rely on the descriptions given to them by the mother and the father, by potential siblings and other family relatives. So at these funerals, if you're a, a good person, you'll just listen to the eulogy and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's beautifully captured, that's beautifully formulated, that's beautifully uh, articulated by the priest. I accept that. I miss that person. Yada, yada, yada. But if you kind of reflect on it, if you know the person who is dead, you might actually argue with the eulogy in your head, saying like, oh, that's not really that person, but I'll just pay my respects. I'll be a good human being and, and let it slide. You know, I'm not, what do I have to gain by being a complete dick? So again, I was wondering how accurate is this simulation of the girl? And, you know, it, it struck me that maybe you know, memory fades. So maybe the mother just closed the gaps, you know, filled in the gaps of the things that were lacking. And, you know, she, you know, she just let it slide and let the emotions rush over her. <laughs> That's probably the case. Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? Since the death of God, there's been a vacancy open. You could fill that void. Here's how. Moving on to the second case, the father in the racing game. It's probably something you've already heard about as well. It's a forum poster who talks about or posted about uh, a story about him and his father playing games. And in that post, uh, he, he writes that his father and him would play games on an old Xbox. He got the game when he was, you know, he got the Xbox when he was four years old. And, you know, the father died two years later when he was six years old. And in that span of time, they would play all sorts of games. And particularly, they would play a game called Rally Sports Challenge. Following the father's death, the poster didn't touch the console for 10 years. So when he was 16, he, he found... He uncovered the Xbox again and he started playing it. All of these games that they were, they were playing, he started playing them again alone. And when he played that game, Rally Sport Challenge, he found that his father was still in the game. And this calls for an explanation. So basically, the father would play these time trial games where he would try to beat his own time, probably for some sort of reward in-game. And when you raise yourself, when you try to beat yourself, beat your own record, your own personal best, um, you know, the lap you just did, the game you just played, gets recorded as another entity on that playing track. So you are actually literally playing yourself. And this is the entity the forum poster would encounter. He would encounter a lap that his father did years earlier. And the poster would play him and he would keep losing, and eventually he would actually beat his father. He would get to, you know, in the final lap, he would get to the finish line, and he would stop just short of it, letting his father pass. Because if he crossed the finish line and actually won the game, he would erase his father's ghost from the game. And I just mentioned this would be actually a literal ghost, because the person, the entity you're playing against, is actually transparent. 
the person is sort of grayed out and you can see what's actually on the other side of that person so it's you know it's it's <laughs> it's actually a specter in the very uh, literal pop cultural sense we're talking about here you know when you when i hear this i can't help but wonder that the ghost is actually stuck in eternity you know, it's actually stuck in limbo, literally. It's constantly doing these laps, and it's laying dormant whenever it's not doing these laps. But, you know, it's still caught, it's still trapped in that particular machine. You know, so, so in a twisted and warped sense, the forum poster would actually release the ghost of his father from the machine, from the chains of the machine, by beating him. So this is actually literally like the ghost stories, right? You have to do something, pay something, uh, execute something, and for that you earn your freedom, and for that you're actually allowed to be dead. You're no longer stuck in this world of limbo. But for now the ghost is still stuck in eternity, just running these laps over and over and over. And this situation is actually interesting, because the ghost doesn't know who it's playing against. When you look at the VR experience we just talked about with the Korean mother and her daughter, you know, the daughter knew she was interacting with her mother because the entire experience was sort of designed around that encounter. But the ghost in this game doesn't know who it's playing against. And that's why it's very important to talk about the internal logic that these ghosts are sort of subjected to because it's very different how this uh, spectrality comes into play it's very different how these ghosts are able to express themselves as these entities because think about the father as well he's stuck in the same pattern maybe he's lucky and he's lying dormant surely but he's still stuck in that mechanized automatic lap that he did years ago that he did years ago that he's not able to free himself of He's literally becoming machine himself. He's literally forced to stay in that same groove that he did years ago. And that's literally what we are talking about right now. We are literally talking about a ghost that is incapable of moving beyond to the realm of the dead. He is forced to stay here in limbo forever or at least until his son releases him. So the last instance of people being trapped or ghosts being trapped in machines, you know, I would just look at people who are seeing their dead relatives on Google Maps. Now, I don't have a concrete example of this one, but you can find it on Google very easily. You can find articles that, you know, they are plentiful out there. But basically, the gist is this. People who have lost... Uh, relatives or friends will look up their houses or look up um, places they used to frequent a lot and they would see them right there in Google Maps. And the thing about these Google Maps specters is that they are blurred out. You know, Google have these rules about privacy that the company has to follow and that causes them to blur out the faces. So that means that for the relatives, the ones who are left behind, they will see the person and they will you know, everything about that person screams to the world that it is in fact that person. You know, the way they stand, where they stand, uh, what they are wearing, etc. So in a way, the watchers are denied access to this single defining feature, the face. And with these images, they are so close to what they desire. But, you know, they are so far away at the same time. Of course, everything seems as if it is that person. But you are denied that, that uh, unquestionable certainty just by blowing out that face.
operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. So what is interesting about these ghosts is that they are more like traces of the people than the actual people themselves. The machines makes it hard for the ghosts to express themselves. It's hard being a spectre because you are confined to such a small space. You know, it's a strange non-existence or unexistence because you are literally a material ghost. You know, you are stuck not in the analog world, but definitely in the digital world. And it must be strange. It's a strange encounter. So that's a strange thing about the digital. It's able to, to capture and to hold something that should be breaking off, that should be coming apart. It's able to hold that and to sort of stabilize it in, a, in an unfathomable way. And these material ghosts are stuck in their software, in their hardware, for all eternity, or until someone who is nice enough to let them out does in fact let them out. Now, one thing I just want to stress very quickly is the fact that these people are, in fact, ghosts. You know, you can't really look at this and say, oh, the person is dead. This is just some residual aspect or some remnant of them. But the person is actually dead. That's not, you know, we can't really talk about uh, anything metaphysically appropriate for this situation. But I say, yes, we are actually able to do so. Because this person, this ghost, this spectral entity has causality. Of course, the person is dead, but the person is also alive. These ghosts occupy a middle ground, a space in between these two positive terms, life and death. It occupies a space in between which is strange, which is enigmatic. But the ghosts, they do have causality. They do impinge on the world. They are, in fact, actualized entities. And we have to, we have to engage them with that in mind. One thing that sort of struck me in this is the fact that our technology, you know, has presence as its defining underlying presupposition. You actually have to be present in order to use technology. And even if you're not there for the technology to kick off, for example, uh, uh, like alarm, an alarm system in your home, you know, you're still some sort of presence through whatever mobile commands you can give on your cell phone or your mobile phone. You know, technology has this presence as its center. And even if the technology is automatic, at least in this day and age, it still relies upon some sort of presence if it breaks down or if it malfunctions or if it needs upgrades. And that's why we can actually say that our technology is completely ill-equipped to deal with the dead. You know, I'm reluctant to, to bring into the equation uh, this notion of defense of Jacques Derrida, but there's definitely some of it at play here. You know, this is in fact what allows free play to happen. This ghostly entity which is neither here nor not here. <laughs> because whenever we have um, these metaphysical binarities, you know, life and death, that's one of the most fundamental ones uh, of these binarities. And that's exactly what the ghosts challenge. That's exactly the binarity that ghosts and the spectres, they challenge and they question it. Because on the one hand, these spectres differ from these two positive uh, categories. They're neither dead, but they're not living either. There's something in between. There's something else. 
And on the other hand, there's a case of deferring going on here because they're actually deferring signification, they're deferring meaning, and they do so by being these entities in between. You have sort of destabilized the center. You have sort of put the center outside of the structure itself because dead or alive, these things... Maybe they don't make as much sense anymore as they did before, at least in this regard of technology. Of course, and this is in line with deconstruction itself, of course, you know, these two categories don't just go out of style. You know, you can still talk about life and death. But the fact is that there's something that offsets the meaning of these two. There's something that sort of kickstarts this chain of signification, this line of signifiers. And that sort of proves to us that there's no transcendental signifier play in terms of technology anymore because of these specters who live or don't live <laughs> in this way that they do. And the best way to sort of explain how they exist is probably not to say exist or not exist or being or non-being, but it's probably just to say trapped. These ghosts, these specters are literally trapped. They're unable to move, they're unable to express themselves, and they are subjected to the internal logic of wherever they are trapped in. And this blurring of the border is what leads me to eeriness in the Fisherian sense. Because in The Weird and the Eerie, Mark Fisher writes a great deal about the eerie, as you can probably tell from the title of the book. Um, and I think this applies very well to the situation at hand. And I'll just read the definition of the eerie that Mark Fisher gives. He writes, The eerie, by contrast, is constituted by a failure of absence or by a failure of presence. The sensation of the eerie occurs either when there is something present when there should be nothing, or there is nothing present when there should be something. And right off the bat, we are in the first category. What we're talking about now is a failure of absence. These ghosts shouldn't be trapped in the machines. Their mode of existence or unexistence should be impossible or should not happen or it's not part of the everyday quotidian fabric of life. Mark Fisher actually goes on to say that you need speculation in order to uphold eeriness. Eeriness is founded upon speculation. You know, whenever the enigmatic, strange character goes off or something is revealed about whatever's going on, you know, the eeriness dissipates. And there's a sort of strangeness about this because ghosts and technology shouldn't really function together because one is completely immaterial, at least in, in some sense, and the other one is completely material. But, you know, through that interplay, through the, the, the rays of sunshine that Donna Haraway talks about, technology works through this ray of sunshine. You know, there's a broader breakdown going on between immateriality and materiality. You know, that's what's at play here. It's that which allows the ghosts to be trapped in the machine. You know, in a cyborg manifesto, Donna Haraway says that we can, you know, recognize cyborgian relationships or cyborgian entities through that border breakdown between materiality and immateriality. Because our technology is now becoming so complex and so small that, you know, she refers to it as, you know, it's running on rays of sunshine. You know, now we have small electronic things within we have small pieces of code we have uh, uh, rays literal rays in the case of bluetooth and wi-fi connections so it's on that ground that we can say the ghosts are trapped because of the nature of our technology of our current technology i might add
So the questions naturally revolve around, you know, what's what constitutes living and what constitutes death? And how is technology able to capture that within its own internal structure? You know, that's a strange question to ask. And there's a set of sub-questions that sort of uh, prop up whenever you ask that central question. So that's what sort of grounds the eerie in this case or in these three cases. And I'll just read another quote from Mark Fisher. He says, There must also be a sense of alterity, a feeling that the enigma might involve forms of knowledge, subjectivity, and sensation that lie beyond our common experience. Encountering your dead relatives or encountering your dead friends on machines, on technology, in a way where they actually where they are actually active and not passive. That's strange. That's uh that's not a common experience at all. So you see, we're actually moving very heavily into the territory of eeriness. And I'll just read the final passage from Mark Fisher. It goes like this. Behind all of the manifestations of the eerie, the central enigma at its core is the problem of agency. In the case of the failure of absence, the question concerns the existence of agency as such. Is there a deliberative agent here at all? Are we being watched by an entity that has not yet revealed itself? Well, who knows what kind of ghost might be trapped in other pieces of hardware and other pieces of software that we don't know yet. And is there a deliberative agent here? In some of the cases, yes. With the South Korean mother, definitely. A deliberative agent was definitely present. The girl was more active than the mother. The mother was crying, uh, trying to sort of um, register what was going on. But the girl was very active and showed her around and asked her questions. She was much more active than the mother herself, actually. And from then on, you know, in the case of the, the father trapped in the racing game and the Google Maps ghosts, you know, their activity sort of fades a bit. The most active in that situation is the player or the user, not the ghost themselves. They are either mechanized or sort of frozen in place. Now, what is important to stress in the case of the Eerie is the fact that it deals with the strange and not the horrific. Mark Fisher, and I'll just quote him for the last time. This is really good stuff. He says, This fascination usually involves a certain apprehension, perhaps even dread, but it would be wrong to say that the weird and the Eerie are necessarily terrifying. And you can see that in these three cases. All of the people experienced some kind of strangeness. Absolutely. But they also experienced some sort of happiness too. In the case of the mother in the interviews following, she was happy with the experience. She thought it was great to see her daughter one final time. In the case of the forum poster, you see at the very end of his forum post, he actually writes bliss. You know, he's blissed that he got to meet his father again. He's blissed that he gets to uh, play with his father for all eternity, if that's what it takes. And in the case of those Google Maps people, you know, they screen cap the experience they have with their grandparents or the dead relatives, etc. You know, they keep those copies on their computer because Google has a tendency to update Google Maps and to take new pictures. So definitely, none of these people experience anything horrific or anything terrifying, but it was definitely strange. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that it was a very positive and life-affirming experience as well. So if you go to the video of the Korean mother, you'll encounter a lot of comments, not all of them, but you'll encounter a lot of the comments which ask, you know, why would you do this? 
Why would she deliberately go into this exchange with her designed and rendered daughter? You know, why rip open something that should be closed and that has been closed for some time? And the answer to this is, you know, nothing's really ever closed. We have to remember this. Nothing is ever really, truly closed. Free play roams about. There's a lot of openness. There's a lot of play. There's a lot of room for signifiers and entities and metaphysics to play around. And technology gives us this opportunity to play. It gives us room to experiment, to try out new things and to reach towards the limit experience. Technology gives us these new ways of being subjects and of encountering other subjects. So thank you so much for listening to the show. It means a lot to me. And if you're able to, please donate to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash It helps the show. It helps me. And together we can create a lot of new, cool, philosophical content. But for now, thank you so much for listening. I ain't afraid of no ghosts.